Expectation. The word means a strong belief that something will happen or be the case in the future. Expectation. Every single person in this room and on our live stream, thanks for being on the live stream, every single person, all of us, knows what it means to have and to feel, right, (laughs) expectations. Every one of us has had something that we were looking forward to, maybe for a very long time, and we had every minute detail planned out and figured out. A vacation, a getaway, a gift, a date night, a trip, a purchase that we were waiting on, a promotion, a job. A conversation, an interaction, an event. Every detail, planned, waiting. And we've all experienced what it's like when that works out, right? The joy and the euphoria of met expectations or even that rare occasion where your expectations were exceeded. Doesn't that feel good? And we've known both sides of that of not having our expectations met, or, has this ever happened to you? Failing to meet the expectations of another person and feeling the disappointment that that brings them? Any parents in the room? (laughs) You know what I'm talking about, right? Like, you promised that thing to your child and it didn't quite work out. Do you remember What happened? Do you remember them falling to the floor, having what looked like an epileptic seizure, speaking a language that you had never heard come out of their mouths? You only understood maybe three words, but you promised. Maybe there's not that many parents in the room. (laughs) I've seen that. Unmet expectations. The people of Israel had centuries of expectations. For thousands of years, thousands, for generation after generation after generation that had been born, lived, and died, they were looking forward to something. They were looking forward to someone. They thought they understood many of the details of that someone coming. They thought they understood exactly who he would be, where he would come from, what he would look like, what he would do, how life would be for the Jewish people upon his coming. They had details, friends, about a Messiah, an anointed, delivering king who would come from a very particular line and save them and the whole world from oppression by establishing his reign and his kingdom forever. Details like this, that this one would come to strike the head of the evil one in this world, bringing an end to sin and wickedness, Genesis 3. That the scepter would not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from his descendants until the coming of the one to whom it belongs. The one whom all nations will honor, Genesis 49. I will raise up a prophet like you from among your fellow Israelites. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell the people everything I command him, Deuteronomy 18. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. 
kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, 2 Samuel 7. The Lord has sent this message to every land. Tell the people of Israel, look, your Savior is coming, Isaiah 62. Then Yahweh will go out to fight against those nations as he has fought in times past. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, Zechariah 14. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle and your king will bring peace to the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Zechariah 9. Look, I am sending my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. Messenger of the covenant whom you look for so eagerly, is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. But who will be able to endure it when he comes? Who will be able to stand and face him when he appears? For he will be like a blazing fire that refines metal or like a strong soap that bleaches clothes. He will sit like a refiner of silver, burning away the dross. He will purify the Levites. And at that time, I will put you on trial. Malachi 3, expectations, detailed expectations of a Messiah figure, a forever king who would come and set things right, who would overthrow sin and oppression, who would display great power and might as he did so, who would purify a people for God and usher in the, usher in the kingdom that humanity had longed for is longing for. And after thousands of years of expectations flowing into a reservoir of hope that was held behind a wall of not as yet fulfilled prophecies after 400 years between the testaments of no prophet of God delivering any word from God, a man named Jesus of the house and lineage of David walks out of Nazareth and teaches with authority and displays miraculous power, setting people free from disease and defilement and demons and sin. And as the holy week of the Passover celebration approaches on the heels, don't forget, on the heels of raising Lazarus from the dead, messianic fervor is at an all-time high in Jerusalem. And it is attaching to this humble carpenter. John 12, the news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city city of around 100,000 that had swelled to, to most believe somewhere between 250,000 and a million Passover pilgrims. And those most familiar with him who are filled with great expectations, this little crowd from Galilee that's walking with him towards Jerusalem are swept up in the emotions of the season and this moment in history, Matthew 21. 
Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 21, verse 1. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. On the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you are doing, just say, the Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. Now, Matthew's narrative note, this took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, verse 5, quoting Zechariah 9, tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Close little note. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees, and they spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Psalm 118, praise God for the son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of Yahweh. Praise God in the highest heaven. The entire city of Jerusalem, 250,000 to a million people, was in an uproar. Literally, the word is the word from which we get seismos, seismic, was shaken. And they asked, who is this? And the crowds replied, somewhat unremarkably, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people, buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. The leading priests and the teachers of religious law saw these wonderful miracles and heard even the children in the temple shouting, praise God for the son of David. But the leaders were indignant. They asked Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? <laughs> Why, yes, Jesus replied. Haven't you ever read the scriptures? For they say, you have taught children and infants to give you praise. And then he returned to Bethany where he stayed overnight. This is the word of God. Father, we come before your word this morning and we know that it means to speak an authoritative message into our lives. We come as those who are weary. We come as those needing rest come as those needing forgiveness and grace and hope. And we know that in this text, we find a king who comes gently. And so help us to see him, please, in a way that we never have before. As Jim prayed, Give us fresh vision. We believe in the Holy Spirit, Father. We say that as a congregation this morning. And so we know that he's at work right here, right now. And so 
Spirit, come in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. A number of years ago, a close group of men I'd been discipling made me aware of a phrase that I knew I was using, but I didn't know I was using as much as I was using it. And it's this sentence. I was reading this passage, and I saw something I'd never seen before. And it it got to be so cheeky that I would start saying the sentence, I was reading this text, and they would finish it, and you saw something you've never seen before. Well, I was reading this text that is frankly familiar to most people who've been in the church for any length of time, who know about, I mean, I was struggling a bit as I read this text because I knew this moment was going to happen. And I'm the preacher. And I've been through 15 Palm Sundays as a preacher. And some of you have been through 50 Palm Sundays as a listener. And so I was feeling this pressure of how do I bring something applicable and fresh whether or not that should even be the goal of the preacher as a Sunday is coming. But I was feeling it. I was struggling. And as I was reading this passage, I saw something I'd never seen before. (laughs) Namely, Jesus, I think probably more than any other point in his ministry at this point, and he's about... 33 or 34 at this time, been in ministry about three, three and a half years, I think he is arranging things. He is orchestrating things and planning things in a way that he's never done in his ministry before. Because I think that he is keenly aware of the messianic expectations that we've reviewed. He too, as a little boy, has heard all of the prophecies. He's memorized the text. He knows them by heart. Goodness, he was there when they were spoken the first time through the prophets. He knows they're about him, and he knows he's supposed to fulfill them. That's why he came to this world in the particular age that he was entering on this planet. And unlike the first three to three and a half years of his ministry where he kept tamping down those expectations and those connections that people started to make, now he completely starts to arrange and orchestrate things to absolutely tap in to those messianic expectations. He's arranging and orchestrating so that he can play the part, arouse awareness, and accept the mantle. It's time for the triumph of the Messiah. However, it is not the triumph they expect. And it may not be the triumph that you're expecting either. Because Jesus will triumph but it will be over their faulty expectations of the Messiah. Their faulty expectations. And maybe our faulty expectations and that of this town and of the whole world. I want you to take a look at some of the things that he's doing to tap into their messianic expectations as we start. Jesus accepts for the first time the title of the son of David. And that's a direct indicator 
that he is the long-awaited Messiah and forever king that had been foretold in 2 Samuel 7. And he receives that from two blind men, if you look back from Matthew chapter 21, at the very end of Matthew chapter 20. Two blind men, ironically, can see what nobody else is seeing and beg the son of David to heal their eyes. He purposely enters into the city on the route predicted long ago by the prophets, standing on the mount that Yahweh was predicted to stand on, the Mount of Olives. Verse 1 of 21. I believe he, I actually think, I can't know this for certain, but I think he probably prearranged that whole donkey person who's going to give the donkey thing and the sentence that they were supposed to give, like a coded word, like, oh, oh, you're the ones that I've been looking for that are come and get this donkey for Jesus who talked to me. I think he arranged all of that, verses 2 to 8. He gladly receives the Messiah-specific adulation of the crowd, waving branches and spreading garments as they hail him again as the son of David who comes in the name of Yahweh, verse 9. He enters the temple and rearranges the furniture. I mean, who else but someone who owns the house gets to rearrange the furniture? Did you go into someone else's house and start moving chairs and tables around? And he says it, right? My temple. I mean, you got to catch how absolutely scandalous that is. He's calling the temple his house. And it will be a house of prayer. He turns back the guidance of King David, who so long ago had forbid the blind and lame to enter into the house, into the temple, and he welcomes them and heals them. And for the third time, he accepts the praise, this time from children, as the long-awaited son of David. And it's this time that the religious leaders, who should be understanding everything that's going on, who are supposed to know the scriptures and make the connections... They turn to him and say, are you listening? Are are you catching? Like, how do you, what? And he quotes a text from the Psalms about God getting praise. You see what he's doing there? Well, haven't you read that even the infants and children will praise God? In other words, why should you be surprised? Because I am God come. Of course they'll praise. Do you see? He wants there to be no mistake. He is the long-expected Messiah. However, he's not the Messiah they were expecting. And we're going to observe that in two ways. It's the rest of our time. Two ways that he turns their expectations on their heads. The first way he turns expectations on their head is that Jesus is, quote, and you see it there, your king coming to you, verse 5, 21, your king coming to you gently. So Matthew is quoting Zechariah, his prophecy, the one that Jim read, to describe what is happening outside Jerusalem in this moment. Look, your king is coming to you and he's humble. Depending on your translation, that word there is humble or gentle or meek. It's the same word that Jesus uses of himself in Matthew 11 when he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls in me. Okay, so teaching moment. Let's pause here for a second as a family because I need you to understand something about how the New Testament works. Every time you see a New Testament author quoting an Old Testament text, do you know what you're supposed to do? 
That text is a bookmark, right? He is just quoting a small portion, a little bit of the story that is meant to transport you back into a context in a much larger story. You see, in in the ancient Near East, they were an oral culture, right? They told stories and they knew all the stories. So he doesn't have to quote all of Zechariah's prophecy. All he has to do is give one sentence and everybody listening immediately has Zechariah's prophecy download like in the matrix. Just whoosh, there it is. And they can see like they've got the story. And so then They're meant to take all of that story back now into this context in the New Testament and say, what you doing here? What's the point you're making? What are you on about? Okay, so as good Bible students, Grace family, every time now, from now on, if you haven't been doing it before, when you see a New Testament author quote the Old Testament and you aren't familiar with that story, and, and so often, right, like here in my Bible, you probably can't see it because it's way too small, but there's all these little notes, and they're the, they're the verses that, and it takes you right back to where you need to go in the Old Testament and read that larger story so you can say, okay, Matthew, what are you doing? So here, in case his readers weren't getting that connection, Matthew quotes the sentences from Zechariah and their minds go back to the larger prophecy of God through Zechariah, which includes their doom is sure. God will be victorious. God will win. So what are they, what are they supposed to think? He's coming and he's going to wipe out the Romans on a donkey? I mean, think about this for a second. Does a man on a donkey inspire in you like Braveheart kind of moments, let's get him? I think it inspires in you what you just did. Like it's almost laughable, right? Like a big man on a little donkey, here I come. No, wait, I'm coming. (laughs) Why isn't he riding a war horse? A stallion, big, black, one of those Budweiser Clydesdales or something. That's what warrior kings do. That's what, that's what messiahs do. They defeat oppressors. They lead armies on massive steeds. But this text says Jesus comes gently, comes humbly, You see, the problem is they've been selective in their listening to the prophecies so that they've become faulty in their expectations. The king comes to them gently in peace. He does not come to make war in the way that they're thinking of making war, but to remove all the instruments of war. That was in the text that you heard Jim read, right? To to remove the battle chariots and the war horses and the weapons of war, they're all gone. To bring a covenant sealed in blood. And they thought that meant bloodshed so that they might be saved, but they missed that it would be his blood shed so that they might be saved. Because the far greater danger to every person shouting, Son of David. See, 
the big danger to their lives wasn't Rome. The danger was their slavery to sin. And this king will come vulnerable and he will come humble and seemingly defeatable to be the Messiah. Not the one that they wanted, but the one that they needed. Which leads perfectly into the second way that he turns their expectations on their head. Your king is coming to you gently. So same point, different syllable. Some of you are going to get that later. Your king comes to you gently and your king comes to you gently. See, part of what Jesus is doing in all of this arranging and orchestrating is that he is forcing everybody to deal with him. The Pharisees, the Romans, the crowds. He's come into Jerusalem before, but this time he's not just slipping into Jerusalem. And while he's coming in gently to save in a way that they don't expect, he's also still very much coming as king. He is the king who is coming into this city, into contact with these differing groups of people, with differing kinds of power, and he's forcing a confrontation. I was reading Tim Keller on this passage a bit this week, and he quoted a Duke University professor of English who's reflected on the life of Jesus. He's written a couple of books about Jesus. In, I'm not even actually sure that this professor is a disciple of Jesus or not, but, but here's something that he said that was really provoking. If 2,000 years of pious handling had not, and I'll add, sadly dimmed both Matthew's story and its demand, okay? So if 2,000 years hadn't dimmed that, the demand of the story of Jesus, his gospel would still be seen as the burning outrage it continues to be, a work of madness or blinding revelation. Okay, so it has to be one or the other. It's either madness or it's blinding revelation. The human acts that it portrays, the story, the gospel story, and the claim it advances from the very first paragraph demand that we make a hard choice. If we give John or Matthew, Mark or Luke the serious witness that they want, we must finally ask the question it thrusts so flagrantly toward us. Does this bring a life-transforming reality and truth or is it just one gifted lunatic's tale of another lunatic wilder than he? Is it just some lunatic telling a story of another lunatic who thought he was God? and could save the world? Or is it something that can absolutely and fundamentally and in every way change your life? Do you see what this professor is saying? He's saying that what Jesus is doing here in this moment in Jerusalem and in this moment in Salida is making claims. He's making the claim to be the absolute ultimate king of the universe. <sighs> That's the claim he's making. Nothing less. 
What he's doing, Keller now, this Keller expands price. What he's doing is saying, you can despise me horribly as a lunatic or you can throw everything over and serve me completely. But there's nothing in the middle. I won't let you like me. No person with integrity can do that with Jesus. Jesus is saying in this moment, crown me or kill me. That's it. That's the confrontation he's forcing. You see? Jesus confronts us. He leaves us no choice. We have to decide if we are willing to accept him as king. You know, I understand. Okay, are you ready for a toe-stepping moment? You ready? I, I don't care. I mean, I do, but I. My email address for notes on the sermon is jim at gracechurchsalida.org. <laughs> um, we have to, we have this saying in the church, I, I accept Jesus into my heart. And I, I know enough what, what you mean when you say that. But I think it misses it a little bit. I don't accept Jesus into my heart. I submit to him as king. He will transform my heart. And he will enter my life through the Holy Spirit. And I'm in Christ and Christ is in me. So I get what it means when we say I accept him into his heart. But it feels like I got a little more power there when I say that than I should have. I am bowing a knee to the sovereign king of the universe and saying, I want to be yours. I want to be your subject. I crown you king. That's what Jesus is saying in this moment. I, I won't let you just like me. You got to crown me or kill me. I want every single part of you. I want absolute control over you. I want to be the center of everything in your life. I want the whole of you, not some of you, not a part of you. <laughs> Maybe I should say his email is like jesus at gmail.com because he's the one saying that to you this morning wants to be your king. And that's what he's saying to Salida and our valley and every heart. Jesus is bringing a confrontation. Crown me or kill me. See, we can't, we can't have some of Jesus and not all of Jesus. Does that make sense? I, I heard a Bible teacher this week her name was Barbara Boyd, and, and she said it this way. You can't have Barbara and not Boyd, right? Like when I come into the room, I, like you can't have Matthew and not Molesky. You can't have Rachel and not Fast, right? You can't have Bob and not Ellen. Like we're, it's a package. It's, it's all of me. I am Matthew, Eugene, Molesky. Jesus confronts us with that reality about himself, so often people turn to God and they turn to Jesus when they want something very badly, usually when something is going very wrong with them or in the world. 
N.T. Wright says it this way, and, and they want Jesus, in terms of this story, the story that we're reading, to ride into their city and become the sort of king that they want him to be. Give us peace now. Pay my bills and hurry. Save the life of my sick child. Do it right away. Give me a job by this time tomorrow. And perhaps the most common of all prayers, help. Just help. And Jesus intends to answer those and all other prayers. However, he must do it in his own way. That's the funny thing about Jesus and prayer. If you invite him into that space, be ready. He's not going to just come in and redecorate with the drapes and put a little fresh paint over here, he's going to tear the house down and rebuild it. He's going to make sure everything is right. You see, we, worship team, would you come up? See, we, friends, we can't have a savior and not a sovereign. We can't have a rescuer and not a ruler. We cannot have his compassion without the king. We can't have his love and not call him Lord. We can't have his deliverance without bowing to his divinity. We cannot have this Messiah without him being our master. You see, we must take all of Jesus or none of him. And we must give Salida all of Jesus and not some of him. Do not be afraid, friends, to share the whole Jesus. That's, see, I think that's what this announcement in Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday is all about. That is his triumph. Giving us the Messiah we need, not the Messiah that we necessarily wanted. And his triumph is a triumph over all of our faulty expectations of him and the kingdom life that he is ushering in. His triumph is a triumph over us. <laughs> Have you ever thought about it that way? Who really is this? His name is Jesus. And he comes to us gently and he comes as our king. And if you will not accept him as he is, who he says he is, and not your idea of who you think Jesus is, you must reject him and even kill him. Which is what Friday is all about when the triumphant Messiah becomes a crucified Messiah. Join us, 6 p.m.